0: I'm Don Winslow, and you're listening to Writer Types. This is Lee Child.
1: I'm Laurie rader Day. Hey, I'm Lou Barney. This is
2: Allison Galen.
1: This is Rachel Housell hall
2: Really good question. Well, that's
0: an interesting question.
2: That is an excellent question.
0: Hi, this is James Ziskin, and you're listening to Writer Types. Maybe you should get a like. Welcome to the show, I'm Eric Bietner and with me is the starsky to my hutch, S.W. Loudon. You're the Cagney to my Lacey. Oh, that's so much better, why didn't I do that? Oh, well.
3: (laughs) Well, Steve, who do we have on the show today? Today, author Angie Kim describes exactly what happened when she stepped into our recording studio.
4: The chamber catches fire and people die and then there's a murder (laughs) trial around it.
3: And Sophie Hanna explains how she's very different from the two of us.
5: I don't want to kill anyone in real life.
3: Plus, I report from my
0: recent trip to Murder and Mayhem in Chicago, and we turn over our Unpanel today to the Crime
3: Writers of Color group. But first, Steve, uh, have you read anything good lately? You know, Eric, I read The Shadow District by Icelandic thriller author Arnalder Andrijdason who I know we've talked about this before, is one of my absolute favorite authors. This is actually the first book in a newish series called the Flobent and Thorson thrillers, which is set in Reykjavik. I absolutely love Andrade's better known Inspector Erlander series, which was actually one of the big reasons I started writing crime fiction in the first place. So I have to admit that I'm a bit biased when it comes to his writing. This one came out in 2017 and it, it tells a story that actually spans seven or eight decades from World War II to the present day. And, you know, that's a pretty troublesome storytelling device for a lot of writers. But he manages to jump around pretty easily in this book. It, it's a really solid mystery. But as with most of his books, it's really about the character studies and bringing Iceland to life in a really interesting way. Do you think
0: Icelandic authors are different anyway from the other sort of like Nordic writers, like the
3: Norwegians and the Swedes? Is it have a different vibe to it? Well, I mean, Iceland in general has sort of a more of a cold isolated vibe the way he describes Reykjavik and it definitely has its own culture that seems uh, divorced a little bit from other more closely grouped Northern European nations. But I did discover him when I was reading all of those Nordic crime authors. How about you? What have you been reading? Uh, Well, I've been reading books uh, set down in Texas, which is probably
0: about as different as you can get from Iceland. Uh, but the latest book by Harry Hunsicker called Texas Sicario is the second in his series about uh, disgraced former cop Arlo Baines. And I really loved the first one, The Devil's Country. I think we talked about it on the show. And mm-hmm. this one is just as good. And I compared uh, Arlo Baines uh, to the new Raylan Givens. So I think if you like those Elmore Leonard books or if you like the TV series Justified, you really should check out these books by Harry
3: Hunsaker. You You'll really dig them. Wow, that is high praise indeed. Well, one of the hottest new books out this month is Miracle Creek by our first guest, Angie Kim. Steve, Miracle
0: Creek, it's a mystery, it's a courtroom thriller and a family story about this experimental medical procedure using a hyperbaric oxygen chamber that of course goes horribly wrong and all of the fallout afterwards, but it also marks Angie Kim's debut novel so angie uh, miracle creek was published less than a week ago as we speak now uh has it been a whirlwind and everything you expect from a book launch
4: um i didn't know exactly what to expect um so i guess yes in that you know i didn't really have any expectations but it has been a huge whirlwind so it's just been sort of crazy but really fun
3: Well, it seems like they're definitely putting you through all of your debut author paces, uh, including a last-minute title change to the book. What happened there?
4: So it was originally called Miracle Submarine because the book uh, centers around this hyperbaric oxygen or HBOT chamber, which is called uh, Miracle Submarine in the book. So it's not a real submarine, but it's a submarine-shaped medical chamber that you and a group of patients enter into. The chamber catches fire and people die and then there's a murder <laughs> trial around it. So that's why we named it Miracle Submarine. And then there was concern from especially the marketing folks and also um, some booksellers that with the submarine in the title that people might confuse it and think that it's a military thriller or you know something like that. And I sort of kept on trying to say, I really don't think that the U.S. Navy is going to name a submarine Submarine, the Miracle Submarine, but they didn't really listen to me. So we changed to Miracle Creek, which is the name of the town. And I actually love that because... Um, it's sort of an homage, a wink, wink to Mystic River by Dennis Lehane, which is one of my favorite novels, and the novel that I had right by my side the entire time I was writing Miracle Creek.
3: The Navy might not name anything Miracle Submarine, but Eric and I are definitely starting a band called Miracle Submarine. The minute, I minute know this episode,
4: right? I know. Seriously, I think it's such a cool name, and we were so excited about it. And my editor and I were like, you know what? In our heart, heart of hearts, we're we're always going to think of it as Miracle Submarine completely.
6: <laughs> well, what do you
3: think- say Eric Beatles cover band or?
4: <laughs> yeah, exactly because of the Yellow Submarine, and that's why actually we <laughs> called it. That's why we called it the Miracle Submarine because um, I actually did this H bot thing with one of my kids, and he, the first time he saw the chamber, he pointed to it and he was like, "Look, it's a submarine," because to him it looked like the same yellow submarine as the Beatles movie, because we had just watched it that summer.
0: You've just sort of mentioned a couple of things that uh, you've taken from your personal life that have gone into this book. And, you know, we don't want to dig too deep into into your your personal struggles, but suffice to say, you've had some experience with one of these uh, hyperbaric chambers.
4: Yes, definitely. One of my kids was born deaf in one ear. And um, also then when he was like three or so, developed celiac disease and ulcerative colitis. And especially the ulcerative colitis, there was no treatment that was a conventional treatment that was working. And so we were sort of growing desperate. And then one of my friends um, who was looking into this hyperbaric chamber for her son who has autism said, hey, there's a facility near us that's opening up. And would you be interested because there's some um, literature in the medical research about how it can be helpful with ulcerative colitis. But when your child is desperate and, you know, crying and not gaining weight and throwing up every day, you know, you sort of, they start thinking okay i'm going to i'm going to just try it and see w- what could possibly go wrong we chose very carefully chose somebody who was really careful and vigilant about the risks of fire and oxygen and things like that And then um, we did a course of 40 dives over one summer and each dive, quote unquote, is an hour long session where you're sealed in this miracle submarine chamber with um, three other patient families.
0: So at, at what point during these 40 dives does your writer brain kick in? And in this hour that you have to sit around and do nothing but think and chat with people, do you start thinking, hmm, what if somebody died here?
4: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you know, that was it, – it's so funny because I wasn't a writer back then. Um, so this was – let's see. My teenager's now 17, and he was like four, so 13 years ago. And I didn't actually start writing until about nine years ago, and I started with like short stories and essays and things like that, and I didn't start writing the novel until about probably – Seven years ago or so, six, something like that. But if I had been a writer, I totally would have thought of that. And then as soon as I started thinking, ha, huh, I want to start a novel, this was immediately the setting that came to.
3: Yeah, it, it sounds like you're bringing a lot of uh, really personal experiences to the story you're telling here. Do, do you think that contributed to giving your book a unique voice?
4: I certainly hope so. I mean, I think all this is the kind of stuff that you can research. But as far as, you know, going beyond the facts and sort of really trying to capture what it felt like being sealed inside this darkened chamber and the confessional feel of it and the intimacy and some of the jealousies and, you know, and closeness, um, both that develops over these 40 hour long sessions, I think all that kind of stuff really contributed to my being able to, you know, have this fertile ground, you know, to explore in writing this novel. It's more than just the HBOT too, because in my novel, the HBOT chamber is owned by a Korean immigrant family. And my family was a Korean immigrant family. I immigrated to the U.S. as a teenager, uh, actually as a preteen when I was 11. So a lot of that experience is in there as well. And it's also a courtroom drama and I used to be a trial lawyer. So it's sort of like I took the things from my life that I thought would be you know, great for a novel and then I tried to sort of... M- mash all of them up into this um, narrative that I hope works.
0: With your experience, you know, as as a lawyer, and then obviously, you know, you've, you bring that sort of realism to both the chamber and to the courtroom side of it. I mean, when you were writing this, were you thinking, I'm writing a legal thriller? This This is the genre I'm going for? Or was that just the, the framing device that made sense for the story?
4: I think it was more of a framing device that made Sense for the story. Now, having said that, I love being in the courtroom. I was a trial lawyer, and that was the only thing I really enjoyed about being a lawyer. Um, and if you know being in the courtroom were more than five percent of a trial lawyer's life, I probably would have stayed in law. <laughs> but unfortunately, it's not.
0: Movies and TV have told me otherwise. You get to you <laughs> get to stand up and say I object and fun things like that.
4: Exactly, and you do get to say I object. And I really like that, and you know, and that was. A really fun part, but unfortunately, that's not most of your days. No,
3: we saved our uh, most important question for last, of course. Okay, which is you know, after this uh roller coaster first week around your book launch, and after all the pre release press you've done, uh, where does writer types rank on the scale of interviews that you've done?
4: Oh, um, well, first of all, I love podcasts and I love listening to podcasts, I love doing podcasts. Now, this is my Third podcast, so I would say it's definitely one of the top three. Except, (laughs) right?
6: (laughs) You
3: really were
4: a lawyer. Okay, but except I would say that. But I did an NPR interview with Ari Shapiro, whom I completely adore, and so I have to say. That that might be the highlight of my entire publication journey. So it it it's definitely going to be not number one, be only because of that, which I hope that you'll understand,
3: you. Erica. Erica <laughs> I'm pretty sure uh, you can do a little fancy editing to make it seem like we're number one, right? <laughs> <laughs>
0: I've done it before.
4: (laughs) Yeah, 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 completely.
0: And let's face it, come on, Ari Shapiro, as good as he is, he's not as funny as we are.
4: Oh, that's true. Yeah, he didn't really make me laugh. He made me cry a little bit, but you know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We we can do that too.
4: Oh, okay,
0: all right. I don't know, Steve, I I think I can re-edit
3: her answer to that question, though. Let Let me give this a shot. Where does writer types rank on the scale of interviews that you've done?
4: Number one, for sure.
3: Now that's more like it, Eric.
0: (laughs) I can't say that uh, it was the first time we've ever done that. Well, our Unpanel this time is very unique, Steve. And to get this group of authors, we handed over the
3: reins to someone else. Several authors, including Kelly Garrett, a guest on this show last year, have started the Crime Writers of Color group on social media, We'll let
0: Kelly explain the origins to you and then hear from three members about why the time is right for a group like this.
7: I'm Kelly Garrett, one of the co-founders of Crime Writers of Color, along with Walter Bosley and Gigi Pandian. It was important for me to start the group for a variety of reasons i had gotten my agent through an online uh, writing mentoring program called pitch wars and one of the best things about pitch wars is that we had a facebook group that was kind of like a support group for all the mentees and so it was just really nice to have a a safe space to kind of chat with each other and figure out how to navigate publishing you know um, as anyone will tell you publishing is such a crapshoot and i think that's especially true if you're from a marginalized background and I just knew from talking with other marginalized writers that we needed a space to be able to support each other through the good and the bad, as well as discuss issues that literally no other person is going to understand. You know, not your agent, not your editor, not your family, not even other writers if they are not from a marginalized background. So we officially started the group in June of 2018. And we currently have about 140 members and that includes people like Walter and Naomi Hirahara and other award winners like Sujata Massey and Gar-Anthony Haywood as well as people who are just starting out their careers, you know, looking for their first agents, looking for their first publishing deal. I definitely think the group has come around at the right time, you know. I'm super super excited to see that like crime fiction publishers are making more of an effort to have their books reflect the world when it comes to, you know, diverse stories and diverse authors. But at the same time, I also think that that just means having this group is just more and more important.
8: I'm Gigi Pandian. I write mysteries on the lighter side of crime fiction, the Jaya Jones Treasure Hunt Mysteries, the Accidental Alchemist Mysteries, and locked room mystery short stories. When Kelly Garrett asked me what I thought about the idea of forming an online community for crime writers of color, I felt a wonderful sense of a void being filled, and I knew that Kelly was the right person to make it a reality. Writing can be a lonely pursuit, plus there's lots to learn about the publishing industry, so having a community is so important. And there are already lots of great communities in the mystery writing world, such as Sisters in Crime, uh, that provide wonderful support. But even in 2019, the mystery world lacks diversity, which can feel isolating. Crime Writers of Color um, is providing an environment where we can share knowledge, talk about our experiences, and even arrange meetups at conferences so that new writers can feel comfortable attending in spaces where not a lot of folks look like us, at least not yet. African-American mystery novelist Eleanor Taylor Bland brought folks together in the 90s, and Kelly Garrett is doing so today.
6: My name is Frankie Y. Bailey. I'm a professor in the School of Criminal Justice, University at Albany. My own series features crime historian Lizzie Stewart in a series set in the South and elsewhere, and a near-future series set in Albany, New York, featuring police detective Hannah McCabe. As to why I think it's important right now to have a group of writers of color, there are several reasons. One is because right now we finally have a critical mass of writers coming into the genre who are writers of color and we can share information, we can have a safe space for discussions, we can advocate around the issues that we're concerned about, we can market together, we can collaborate. We can also engage in outreach to the larger mystery detective community as we work with offers outside our group, as we reach out to readers, as we try to serve an underserved audience of readers of color.
9: Hey, this is Alex Segura. I'm the author of the Pete Fernandez Miami Mystery Series. The latest book in the series, Miami Midnight, hits in August from Polis Books. So the question, why is a group like Crime Writers of Color important now? I'd say it's always been important to have diverse authors and marginalized authors having a forum or an opportunity to communicate with each other, to network, to share experiences and feedback and just give advice. I mean, the, the benefit of this group is that it's so diverse in terms of experience and knowledge that we have veterans, we have superstars, we have new up and coming authors, and we have people who are still not even published yet. Um, and I think having that dialogue and that exchange of ideas is super important. And also to raise flags when there are issues with, you know, other, uh, established parts of our community. Um, so everyone's In the know and transparency is so important especially today where there's still a lot of you know a lot of barnacles we need to clear off so it's hugely important i'm honored to be a part of it and i'm really thankful it exists
0: well we want to say a big congratulations to alex segura on the birth of his second child a daughter congratulations alex and nice that he uh, took the time out being all sleep deprived to uh, record us a little bit for the show
3: You know, let's go ahead and re-edit his part to make him sound even more tired than he is. (laughs) That didn't need it. (laughs) So, Eric, you were recently in Chicago for the third annual Murder and Mayhem Conference.
0: Yes, I was lucky enough to host the event for the third time, and it went extremely well. Organizers Dana Kay and Lori Rader Day put on a heck of a show out there. And while I was there, Steve, I got a chance to sit down with one of the keynote speakers, author
3: Sophie Hanna. Well, Sophie's an international bestseller with more than two dozen novels. She's written standalones, The Zaylor and Waterhouse Mysteries, plus she was handpicked by the Agatha Christie family to continue the beloved Hercule Poirot series.
0: Well, I'm sorry you couldn't be there, Steve, because she was charming and funny as we discussed her books, the likelihood of her ever murdering someone in real life, and the best place in the world to swim. Sophie Hannah, thank you for joining me.
5: Thank you for talking to me.
0: Now, maybe you can help me with this. You have kids. I do. How do you explain to them that while you write about murder, mommy is not herself a murderer?
5: (laughs) They've never feared that I am. Uh, You know, I've been writing crime since very shortly after my daughter was born, so she's the oldest, my son is the youngest, that neither of them remembers a time when they didn't have a mum who was writing crime fiction. So it's just totally normal for them.
0: So they've never read something that you've written and thought, oh, mum, how could you?
5: (laughs) No, they wouldn't be even remotely shocked. (laughs) Well, they don't do a lot of reading, to be honest. They're on Instagram and Snapchat the whole time. Um, They're getting, actually, if if they wanted to read my crime fiction, I wouldn't stop them because I've never really done that whole you're too young for this because I think that just makes people want to right. watch the thing Even you know, I just don't think it works um I suspect that my daughter will read all my crime novels when she's older um my son at the moment shows no interest whatsoever in picking up a book so <laughs> who knows
0: well you have so many different books you have uh, different series standalones uh, the Poirot books do you ever look back at any of your old titles and think oh my gosh did I
5: write that Every book, when it arrives, so when my publisher sends me copies of the new book, all finished and looking nice, I always have a moment where I look at that book and I think, I know I wrote this, but it seems like a weird dream. And I'm glad I don't have to write it again because I'm not quite sure how I managed to do it. Uh, So, yeah, and, and certainly the ones that I wrote several years ago, in a way, they do always feel as though they came from a past life but I think that's just because my mind is always on the next thing so at the moment my mind is on the book I'm going to write next so even the one I finished only a month or so ago feels like a strange and distant dream it's quite nice actually
0: yeah that's a good quality for a writer is the ability to let go so you're not just revising for years and years on end. and
5: the really nice thing is when I if I haven't picked up a particular book of mine for a couple of years I'm able to look at it without those sort of angsty feelings of, oh, no, is it good enough? Do I need to change this? Is there anything I can do to improve it? And if I look at a book that I've written too recently, I start wanting to edit it. But if it's been out for a few years and I look at it again, then it it starts to resemble just a book that might have been written by someone else. And I really like being able to look at my books as if they're just books rather than things I potentially need to work on,
0: (laughs) you know? Uh, so I just want to go over your thought process when you first got the Poirot gig. I, you told a great story this morning about the, the whole process of, of how that went down. I just want to get into, like, your mental state, because uh, here's my theory, and you, you tell me if, if how correct this is, because I would imagine it went quickly from sort of a giddy elation to utter terror at having to take on this the storied franchise to then probably pretty quickly just an eagerness to want to get your hands dirty and get right in there and start.
5: Uh, Well, so I was always very clear that I didn't have to take it on. So even, you know, I was obviously hugely flattered to be asked, but I really wanted to do it. There was no element of, I'd better do this since I'd been asked. I really, you know, as soon as I saw that the family actually wanted me, the Christie family wanted me to write a new Poirot novel, I thought, actually, creatively, this is the most exciting thing that could possibly happen because I write mystery novels anyway. I was writing in what I think of as the Agatha Christie tradition of mystery. Some writers write in the Raymond Chandler tradition. I was always in the Christie tradition. So just as a creative challenge, it was hugely exciting. So that was my main feeling was excitement. It was like, this is really important. This is Agatha Christie. This is Hercule Poirot. I'm so lucky to have this opportunity. This really matters and I need to do it as well as I possibly can. You know, I need to work as hard on this as I've ever worked on anything, if not much harder.
0: Well, that's good. The the weight of it didn't uh, block you up and keep you... No, well, I'll
5: tell you why it didn't. I quickly, when I saw that it was maybe going to be an option, I thought, right, let's just go straight to what the worst case scenario would be and we'll see how that looks and I realized that the worst case scenario was I would try and write a Poirot novel or I would succeed in writing a Poirot novel but somehow it would be awful or I would get halfway through and find I couldn't do it and all of those outcomes I just thought well that's not the end of the world if I start and find I can't do it then I just go to the Christies and I say, "I'm really sorry. I've tried my best. I just couldn't do it." Well, the world's not going to end if that happens. Yeah. Similarly, if I write a Poirot novel and it's really bad, I knew very well that the Christies would not have dreamed of allowing a book to be published that they didn't think was up to scratch. True. And I thought I can live with either of those. That's fine.
0: Yeah. I want to know, uh, you know, when piecing together the the types of mysteries that you write, do you? kind of start with the solution and reverse engineer things back to the to the start how do do you go about doing the, the math involved in that
5: so it always happens in one of two ways either i start with the solution so in the case of the monogram murders i started with the solution i knew who had done what and why and i worked backwards with closed casket my second poirot novel i started with a motive for murder and that motive for murder, I'm convinced, is the best idea I've ever had. Oh. It's so simple, I could say it to you in four words, and you'd get it. So it's kind of like, it's not this, but say like, murder for the money. Right. The only reason that's not a great motive is because it's been done a million times. Yeah. But it's simple, <laughs> it's easy to explain. So so my motive for closed casket was like that, but very unusual. It had never been done before, but... Half of the books start like that with a solution, a motive, something from the end of the story. And the other half start with an intriguing beginning that takes the form of a mystery and I have no idea how to solve it. I always never have a clue if I start with the beginning. <laughs> But I now just trust that pretty soon an answer will present itself.
0: That's the fun part, right? Is Digging yeah. in and figuring that out. I'm, and, and, I'm in that
5: situation again, so I'm about to start writing the fourth paranormal novel. I've got a brilliant, weird, intriguing, mysterious scenario for chapter one. And until last week, I had no clue how I was going to make <laughs> it all come together at the end. And just in the last few days, I've kind of work, worked out how it will be solved. All right. So, yeah, I just trust that there is always an answer and it will be delivered to me in time.
0: Do you ever come up with the with an ingenious murder and like that that instigating point and think, this is so good, I could get away with this in real life?
5: No. <laughs> no. no? Okay. I never think that because, yeah, no, I, I, I don't want to kill anyone in real life.
0: Okay, that's good.
5: The most, you know, even if I'm... Absolutely, at the point of being beyond fury, which I can be, the most I fantasize about doing is like really yelling at someone. You know, really give someone a bit of a good ticking off. <laughs> <laughs> I never would want to kill anyone. And I just think of fictional crime and real crime as being two completely different things. You know, right. I'm actually not interested in crime, I'm interested in mystery. So all my books are mystery driven rather than attempts to look at the horribleness, because real crime is horrible,
0: Yeah, but mysteries
5: are exciting and great and fun.
0: When you come to the States, are there things that you definitely want to make sure to do when you get here? If if it's like a certain kind of food that you can't get, or visiting a certain place, is there something that uh, you always try to tick off when you
5: get here? Yeah, so I am an obsessive swimmer, and for some reason, it's very inconvenient, but I love swimming in America best of all really? so any trip to the states i make sure i'm staying in a hotel with a pool and as much time as i can i spend either in the pool swimming or next to the pool on a lounger reading a book or in a jacuzzi or in a sauna that is what i love to do
0: what's what's different about swimming here than in the uk I,
5: you know, i don't know i was trying to work <laughs> it out because I, I was in new york before i came here and i stayed in a lovely hotel and they've got an outdoor heated pool And I had an hour and a half long swim in that pool. And I was just like, this is heaven. (laughs) Whereas when I go and swim in outdoor heated pools in England, which I often do, like I really enjoy it, but there's just something about being in America and swimming.
6: Wow.
5: Yeah, so that's weird, isn't it? The other thing I like to do is I I like to go... the hot bits of america Uh i love florida i love arizona i love you you
0: blew it coming to chicago
5: (laughs) it's so funny i just associate america with hot sunny weather so i forgot even though on this trip i'm only going to new york and chicago i brought my florida clothes and i I stepped (laughs) out into the new york air wearing like shorts t-shirt and flip-flops i was like oh yeah i forgot i'm not (laughs) coming to florida (laughs)
0: Well, Steve, that was a fun conversation I had with Sophie Hanna, but that's not all. While I was there in Chicago, I got to talk to a ton of other writers, and I brought back a little audio for
3: you just to make you jealous. You're definitely making me jealous. I went to the first year of Murder and Mayhem in Chicago, but I haven't been back since, and I'm thinking that I definitely should go next year.
0: Yeah, I'll I'll fit you in my carry-on. Done deal. (laughs) This is Brian Gruley. So Brian, you were just on a panel uh, here at Murder Mayhem in Chicago, and you had, I think, one of my favorite analogies for what it's like to be an author, uh, uh, and it involved being on a desert island. Can you tell the listeners uh, what that is? I think of being an author as being on, you know, the proverbial beach on a deserted island. And so you write your manuscript, and you roll it up, put it in a bottle, and then you fling it out there, and hope somebody picks it up and reads it. I've felt that uh, I've been flinging bottles for a long time, and they're still floating. Is that yeah. sometimes? That's happened to me. You know, what's useful is the life rafts out there. Those are librarians, <laughs> or, or really great booksellers, who pick your book, your bottle up, and go, "Hey, you other people, you should be reading this book." <laughs> I, I've, I've literally used this
5: speaking to librarians, <laughs> and they love it. <laughs>
1: I'm Tracy Clark, a writer of the Cass Reigns mystery series set in Chicago, and uh, this is my debut year.
0: Now, you write about the darker and grittier side of Chicago. I try to. Is it safe to say that uh, you think Chicago is maybe the darkest city to write about?
1: I wouldn't say the darkest, but it has its darker sides and areas. And uh, I think after New York, we're probably one of the crime-ridden most <laughs> big cities anywhere. I mean, we've got gangsters and everything. I mean, the whole foundation of this whole city is sort of corrupt and crooked and twisted and deliciously so.
0: Yeah, you seem strangely proud it. of that.
1: Yeah, I love it. I love it. It's, we have our mark on, the, on America. This is the crime-ridden city of the, of the entire country, and we're taking it with pride.
0: And even as we say that, the police are driving by.
1: And absolutely, that'll go on all freaking day long.
0: Yeah, I, I live in Los Angeles right now and, you know, I come here and uh, I see a very different city. It's a very different vibe. It's a different feel. Do you think that you could take your stories and pick them up and move them to a city like Los Angeles?
1: I don't know. I think in order to do that, you'd have to have a feel for the place and uh, actually know where the dark and city areas are. Um, I think if you're sort of set in a place, you know what the what the place is about. If I moved to L.A., I would probably have to do a lot of research and try to figure out where the, the people hang out, <laughs> the people that that I write about, and uh, it might take some time. All right.
0: Well, if you come for a visit, I'll show you the seat of your side.
1: I look forward to it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm here with Tim Hennessy, editor of the new Milwaukee Noir Anthology from Akashic Books. Tim, uh, what made you think that Milwaukee has
10: enough dark crime stories to fill an entire book? We have a large population that has always kind of lived in the spectrum of Jeffrey Dahmer and <laughs> a lot of other crimes that are regularly reported, so there's usually a lot of material and just an under representation of actual fiction written by milwaukee authors or even even pop culture taking place in milwaukee so when you're working on your own fiction do you find inspiration in uh, your neighbors yeah i do when my wife and i moved into this brand new house right after we found out we were gonna have a kid there was a a glock in the street and there were bullets scattered across and we called into 911 and the dispatch was they were telling us all about the police chase that happened essentially through my new neighborhood. And then that night, my neighbor popped her head out and pointed out that the dollar store on our corner had gotten robbed, and uh, the person was at large. So my neighborhood, uh, just, just walk in the block. You can end up with some inspiration real easily. So I'm guessing uh, that you do
0: not work for the
10: Milwaukee Tourism Board. No, no, I've, I've been told by a number of people I, I, I give a terrifying tour of Milwaukee when I do. <laughs> uh, So tell us when the book's coming out. Uh, It comes out May 7th. Excellent. Congratulations. Thank you.
11: Hi, I'm Mindy Mejia, author of Leave No Trace and Everything You Want Me to Be.
0: Now, Mindy, when you come to a conference like this in Murder, Mayhem in Chicago, are you here more to rub shoulders with fellow authors, or you like to get down and meet the readers? What's your motivation for coming to something like this?
11: This is summer camp for authors, <laughs> honestly. Like, it's it's where our tribe comes together, and we get to meet the readers, and we get to see friends and make new friends. Honestly, I never had great summer camp experiences as a kid, so I feel like this is my redo. This is my bonus round. Oh, there you
0: go. Yeah. And it's a chance to get out of uh, the, the writing cave that we all live in, right?
11: Exactly, yes. To actually socialize, get away from the screen.
0: Yeah. Are you someone who uh, really buckles down and when you're writing something you're you try to shut out the rest of the world for those couple of weeks or months
11: kind of yeah i limit my reading you know and i'm more i'm i'm not on social media at all i kind of disappear from from things like that while while i'm working just because you have to the deadline's looming you know so but uh yeah so it's nice to be able to come out of your shell and actually you know breathe fresh air
0: and is it surprising to you ever when you think these dark thoughts and then you put them down on the page and then you come and you meet people who are actually excited to read about the, the dark places that you go on, your, on the page?
11: I make murder jokes at the bus stop a lot <laughs> with the other bus stop moms and they don't get them. <laughs> like they really look at me
0: strangely.
11: Like, um, so yeah, it's nice to be here where I can make murder jokes and people are like, <laughs> that's all, yes, yes, we should all write that. That's why I love it. <laughs>
12: Hi, I'm Julie Heise, author of Virtual Sabotage, as well as the White House Chef Mysteries and the Manor House Mystery Series.
0: Uh, Julie, you uh, just from that list of books, you play sort of both sides of the fence. You have these intense techno thrillers, you have the, a little bit of a, the cozier side. Is that just to keep yourself interested?
12: Yes, I, I'd have to say that I really prefer writing dark, and I got into Cozy's... I'm not going to say accidentally, but a little bit accidentally, and I enjoyed them. I thoroughly enjoyed them, and they were they were just so much fun to write. But they're not where my heart is. My heart is in is in the darker stuff.
0: Now, is this something you like the thrills and chills on the page, or is this something you carry through into your real life?
12: Oh, on the page. <laughs> okay, my best thing, the scariest thing I, I ever did was uh, zip lining. <laughs> that's that's about as far as I'm going to go. Yeah. Okay. I sometimes when I when because I'm quite the introvert. Sometimes when I have to go into a a party where I don't know anybody I have to ask what would my character do and how would my character handle it because they are way braver than I am
0: that's a great way to handle it for, really for writers <laughs> yeah uh, so you have to do obviously a lot of research I would guess mm-hmm. for some of the, like, the high-tech stuff that you do uh, but you you're not even tempted to uh, do sort of research and get out in the field to the more action-oriented stuff?
12: Oh, definitely. I want to get more into the action-oriented yeah. stuff too. And I, I just want to keep trying. I want to do a lot of standalones and try different things and, and just explore. There's so many ideas out there and I want to do them all.
0: <laughs> I love that attitude because that's, I always beat up-and-coming writers or aspiring mm-hmm. writers and I think that a lot of people worry, is this the only story I have in me? But you're someone who's, just, who's brimming with ideas.
12: There are more ideas than I can ever get to. There's, not, there's never enough time.
0: And are you uh, easily distracted by the shiny new thing, or do you ke- keep ideas bubbling and then finally you got to get to it?
12: Easily distracted by the shiny <laughs> new thing. <laughs> Constantly. Although I did find once I was writing two things at once, two novels at once, which I had never done before, and I really should do that again. Because as, as one got to a, a sticky point or, you know, I got bored with it, The shiny new thing was the other novel. And then I would say, well, let me just look at it and see what I can do with it and then play with it, and I would be into it, and then I'd get to a sticky point. And then it was the shiny new thing again. I really need to go back to doing that because that was extremely efficient writing.
0: That's smart. You're giving a lot of tips for the (laughs) up-and-coming writers today.
13: Hi, I'm Jess Lowry, author of The Murder by Month Mysteries and an upcoming suspense novel from Thomas and Mercer.
0: Now, Jess, how does it feel that you have become more famous now for your posts about
13: cats than for your actual writing? Well, actually, it's a dream come true, Eric. So thank you for asking. I've long, I've long aspired to be a cat lady, and at age forty-eight, I finally achieved my dreams. Oh, congratulations! Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh,
0: so tell us about uh, this new book. That's uh, you, you've you've gone through all twelve months of your murder by month, mm-hmm. and so now you're on to something new. And this is even different than the Salem Cipher and that, that whole world, right?
13: Yeah, yeah, it is. It's actually a deeply personal suspense novel based on. I grew up in Painesville, Minnesota in the 1980s and it's a a very aptly named town Uh, (laughs) and so many dark things happened that I think I might make it this whole cottage industry fictionalizing them but the most famous one was uh, several boys were abducted throughout the 1980s and my book is about growing up as a pre-teenager knowing that all of this dark stuff is happening and the town was population 2000 back then and so it's a small town but nobody told us what was happening so finally in my 18th book I'm dealing with it.
0: So you went uh, the, the full dark route there and you chose not to focus on the painful, you know, fashion and hair choices from the 80s. Right?
13: Oh, no, I worked that in, too. Okay, and a lot of and a lot of television and a lot of, oh, my God, my searches, the things that I, I forgot about, like the things we did with our hair, the clothes we wore, the pinned jeans, uh, all of the stuff that I got excited about. I got excited about, again, researching it, honestly. Yeah, it was fun stuff.
14: So I'm David Haggerty. I'm the author of the Duncan Cochran Mystery Series,
0: Then the first one in the series is called They Tell Me You Are Wicked. Uh, Now we're here in Chicago, which you write about, but you don't live here. Why not write about where you live? Well, because Chicago is so much cooler than where I live, of course.
14: <laughs> um, actually, I'm a native of Chicago. I grew up here, and the inspiration for my first book was a crime that happened in my hometown of Kenilworth. There was a U.S. senator named Charles Percy, whose daughter was murdered six weeks before Election Day. Wow. And so I took that as a premise, and I spun it out into fiction from there.
0: And does uh, nothing dark and dreary happen where you live now?
14: Um, well, it's California, so there's dark, dreary things every day, but... <laughs> For some reason, it's always easier to write about a place that you've left because you have a better perspective on it, I think. Also, all my books are set in the 70s and 80s, and so it's easy for me because that's the way I remember Chicago. I don't live here anymore, and so to me, the Sears Tower is still the Sears Tower, not something else. And the Cubs are still lovable losers.
0: Are these books a way of sort of rehashing uh, deep-seated issues in your childhood, then?
14: I'm sure they are. Um, My mother may listen to this, so I don't want to delve too deep, but... (laughs) I think it's it was a contrast between my childhood and my adult life. That um, I grew up in the North Shore, which is a very quiet, safe community. And after college, I moved away from there and I had a completely different experience. Um, two years after I left, my next-door neighbor was murdered in California. And I went to work in a county jail for seven years and met lots of people wow. at every end of the criminal spectrum. And shortly thereafter, I just started writing stories based on all those experiences.
0: Well, I hope sometime over the weekend you uh, witness a good crime that inspires the next novel. I'm taking the L home, so there's a good chance.
6: (laughs) Hi, I'm Cheryl Head. I'm the author of the Charlie Mack Motown mystery set in Detroit.
0: Now, Cheryl, you were just on a panel called The Kindler, Gentler Murder. Is there such a thing?
6: Oh, sure. When you don't show all the blood and the gore and the knife going deep into the sinew and the tissues, I think it's kinder and gentler, don't you? The end result is the same, though. But, you know, there's a way to kill with finesse.
0: But <laughs> oh, no, Wait, this sounds like you're speaking from experience. <laughs>
6: Only as a reader. Okay. <laughs>
0: Now, uh, setting is obviously a huge part of, of your books, and when you come to a different setting like Chicago, does it inspire you to sort of look at stories in a different way? It, do you come away with some, some new ideas from a trip yeah.
6: like this? I mean, Chicago is such a magnificent city. really deserves the title, Second City. What I was intrigued by is the architecture, and, you know, mystery writers look at everything differently. So I was thinking, could someone be thrown off that statue onto the cement? What kind of damage would that do? (laughs) Sorry, that's what I think about instead of the Art Institute of Chicago. (laughs) It's our burden and our
0: curse, right?
2: (laughs) Yes, indeed. (laughs) I'm Amelia Brunskill. I'm the author of The Window.
0: Now, Amelia, what's the strangest or most mysterious thing you've ever seen from your own
10: window?
2: That is an excellent question. And I watched Rear Window a lot of times, so I feel like I should have a really good... I've, I've, I've always wanted to see someone, like... I, I would like to be a hero and save someone, of course, and I haven't actually seen anything. I feel like the weirdest stuff has been like wildlife related, just like squirrels and things.
0: Well, So writing the book is wish fulfillment in a way.
2: Absolutely, yeah. So I would like to, you know, prevent a murder, I should say, rather than solve one, because you know, prefer not to up the body count in the world if I can. <laughs> yeah.
0: So you want to be the heroine of your own story.
2: I would really enjoy that, yes. <laughs>
0: Now, when you fantasize about stopping this murder in progress, as clearly you've done quite often, uh, is it uh, like a run in and tackle somebody, or is it figure it out using your smarts?
2: I mean, I think there'd have to be tackling. I would look amazing, of course, and so it might be like slow motion tackling, um, classy maybe with a cape, just off the cuff, you know.
0: Do you always keep a cape like hanging by the front door in case you need to run out and save someone?
2: I really should invest, shouldn't I? Yeah. Maybe with a good lining, so when it flares up, there's something like nice that you see, like some paisley underneath.
0: Clearly, you have not thought about this
2: enough. Absolutely. No, but it's coming to be quite well.
0: <laughs> well,
3: that's it, Steve. But before we go, we need to give away another book. That's right. Last episode, we challenged you to find us on Twitter and enter in your chance to win a copy of Michelle W. Miller's novel, Widows in Law. And our winner is... Greg Levin! <laughs>
0: <laughs> Did he win a book or a new car? <laughs> All right, that's it. We are doing the whole show that in that game show announcer voice from now on. You know I'm game, Eric. <laughs> well, Greg, a copy of Widows in Law will be on its way to you soon, courtesy of our sponsor, Blackstone Publishing. So Steve, what did we learn this time?
3: Angie Kim taught us just how many great band names are out there in discarded book titles.
0: Sophie Hannah taught us that she is not a suspect if someone turns up dead,
3: but if someone needs a good ticking off, she's your gal. And the Crime Writers of Color taught us that the time is now for more diversity in publishing. Well, you really should be following us on Twitter, at Writer Please subscribe to the show, and while you're there, leave us a review.
0: As always, the show is produced and edited by Eric Beatner and S.W. Loudon. For more on Steve's books, visit swloudon.com. And for more on Eric's books,
3: go to ericbietner.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs> I think you have another career in there. I don't know. Can you edit all that out? Just edit my voice out completely <laughs> of the whole episode. I can do that. You've thought about it before, haven't you? <laughs>